This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're looking this morning at verses 8 through 10. Hear the word of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Give thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray as we study the scriptures this morning that your spirit would attend the preaching and hearing of your word with divine power. Father, to feed our souls, to stir our hearts with adoration, and Father, to equip us as your people, to strengthen us in serving you, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a time where you wanted to speak up for Christ, you felt this impulse to speak up for Christ? Now, you should speak up for Christ, but didn't. Why not? Well, it could be that the time just wasn't right. The reality is, sometimes it's just not the right time, or sometimes it's just not the right context to get into a discussion with someone about the condition of their soul. Uh, about such ultimate realities as Christ. Uh, It may be that uh, it's just a situation where you really don't have the relationship with the person to talk about things of such a personal or perhaps controversial, uh, at least for them, uh, nature. And so you don't. But you know, and I know, that there have been times where we could have said something about Jesus, or at least identified ourselves as Christians, but didn't because we were just kind of embarrassed to. We just didn't want the attention, or we didn't want the difficulty, or we just didn't want to be associated with Christ in those circumstances. And then we remember what Jesus said in Mark 8:38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? And we think, oh no, have I committed the unpardonable sin? 
Well, no, most likely not. If that question occurs to you at all, it's quite possible and it's quite unlikely, rather, that, that you have committed the unpardonable sin. Nevertheless, what Jesus says, that if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us, reminds us of how important this matter is. Uh, of being willing to speak up for Christ, of not being ashamed of the gospel. And that's what Peter or Timothy is rather hearing from the Apostle Paul here in this passage. Uh, Paul, of course, has begun by encouraging Timothy, uh, reminding Timothy that he is a man and a child of God who is very much prayed for, that Paul prays for him constantly as he thinks of him. He reminds Timothy of, of his background, that he is a trophy of God's grace, Grace that in Timothy's case has been at work in his family, that he is a covenant child, that he comes from a background of, of certainly Jewish faithfulness and Christian belief. And he reminds him of the need to, uh, to fan into flame the gift that he has received to serve the Lord with. All of these things encouraging Timothy. And as we saw last week, though the details may, may vary in each of our cases, things that are true of us as well. Uh, that we too are part of the body of Christ and are prayed for and supported, that we too uh, have, have are trophies of God's grace if we believed in Christ, that we too have gift or gifts that God has given us for service. And we need to be bold, not, not cowardly. Uh, but as verse 7 says, to go out uh, reminded that we have a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Because that's true, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. There are certain things that flow from that. And that's what the apostle now takes up uh, with his protege, Timothy, his son in the faith, wants to encourage him in this very matter of not being ashamed of the gospel. Now, that's a theme that we'll see through the rest of chapter 1 today, Lord willing, next week, as we look at the remainder of this chapter. Uh, verse 8, do not be ashamed. Verse 12, I am not ashamed. Verse 16, and he was not ashamed of my chains. Starting to see a theme here, right? Not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, why would Paul bring this up? Why would he mention that so many times? Because he recognizes that that can be a tendency in Christians. And we'll explore that in just a minute. But what Paul is saying to Timothy, what this passage actually has to say to us, is that we need to recognize that the gospel is a treasure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is something worth suffering for. To whatever extent, uh, being avoided, being laughed at, being physically beaten, being put to death. Whatever the degree of suffering that may come about for being Christians, the gospel of Christ is a treasure that is well worth suffering for. So let's look at what Paul says here in these verses, verses 8, 9, and 10 today. First, he does acknowledge the temptation to avoid suffering for the gospel, which is a kind of a nice way of saying to be ashamed of the gospel. First of all, we might be ashamed of the message itself. Look at verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, the testimony about our Lord. Now, we recognize here the very heart of the gospel message, the good news. What is the good news? Is the good news that God has changed me? Is the good news that I've had a religious experience? No, not really. I mean, that may be the result of the good news. 
That having believed in Jesus, I am different. Having believed in Jesus, that I'm filled with the love of Christ. Uh, those are good things. But that's not the good news. The good news is not what happened to me. The good news is what God has done in Christ. Right? And that's why Paul says, don't be ashamed of my testimony about myself. Although Paul is quite readily willing to talk about what Jesus has done for him, as we see in the book of Acts. But rather, it's the testimony about our Lord. The testimony of our Lord. Not Jesus' testimony, but our testimony to him. Our message about him and about what he's done. Now, Paul goes on to expand that in the, in the coming verses, and we'll look at that. But that's an important distinction to remember that the good news we have to offer is what God has done for sinners, for all who would believe in, in Jesus, through the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, don't be ashamed of this message about Jesus. Now, there may be reasons we're tempted to be ashamed of that. Remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said that to the Jews, the message of Christ Jesus, the message about him, was a stumbling block. That is, it was a scandal to them. It was a difficulty to them. And the reason was, the idea of the Messiah was one of glory. It was one of victory. It was one of strength. It was one of triumph. It was one of vindication, even revenge, on the enemies of the Jews. But the idea of the Messiah coming and, and suffering, and ultimately dying, and, and dying the painfully shameful death of crucifixion, didn't fit their paradigm didn't fit their conception of the Messiah. And so they stumbled over it, just like you're walking along and you hit a rock and fall. It just didn't work for them. It was a scandal to them. The very idea that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, would die on a cross, just nonsense. So to the Jews, Paul says the message of Christ is a stumbling block. Now, to the Greeks, the whole thing is just sheer foolishness. It's folly. What do, you, what do you mean? Why would God even become a man to start with? He's, he's God. Why would he want to take on the, the flesh and live in a fallen world? And maybe God is so far away from us, he, we can't understand him anyway. And, and how could Jesus be God and, and speak our language? And, and all of this that it was the difficulty for the Jews in their wisdom that God would do such a thing as, as the Christians say now in Jesus he has done. It was, it was foolishness. That, and that, that Jesus would rise from the dead. Now we know dead people don't come back. Foolishness. You know, those two things are some of the very reasons that you and I might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Because it offends people. A big one today is, is, is how can you say your way is the only way? Well, ultimately, Jesus said it first. I am the way, truth, and the lie. No one comes to the Father except by me. So we feel something of that. We sense the difficulty that causes people uh, and, and the stumbling block and, and the foolishness. And so, yes, we may be tempted to think, well, I want this person to think well of me. I don't want them to think I'm off my rocker. So I'm going to tone it down. Maybe I just won't let them. Maybe next time I'll let them know I'm a Christian, but... Ashamed of the message, but also ashamed of the messenger, ashamed of the person. Look at what Paul goes on to say. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord in other places. Ephesians, he refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, notice he doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. Uh, 
nor of me his, Jesus' prisoner. He's in prison for the sake of Jesus. Yes, he's in captive, captivity by the Romans, but for Jesus. Um, don't be ashamed of me. Here's this man, this leader, and he's now in prison, and it would be very easy to avoid him, not to, uh, to be associated with him, to want to distance yourself from him. And in fact, it seems that that's what some people were doing. Look at verse 15. You are aware, Paul says to Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. There were people who were distancing themselves from Paul. As they were ashamed to be associated with him as the foremost spokesman for Christ, perhaps, in his day. And we feel the same thing. Maybe it's a friend at school who's a Christian, and they're kind of being teased for it. And you think, well, you know, I just don't want to be seen talking to them. People might think I'm a Christian, too. Well, you are a Christian, aren't you? Will you not stand and suffer with those who suffer for the name of Christ, or are you ashamed of them? Or maybe it's a coworker at work who, who is known as a Christian, and you see what, uh, what, how they're talked about behind their back, and you don't want to be associated with them, lest you fall under the same scorn. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of those who are known as being Christians, and hopefully that includes you too. Paul brings this up because he knows this is a temptation. Jesus knew it too. That's why Jesus said what he said, that if we're ashamed of him in his words. So it is a temptation. Paul acknowledges that right up front. So that's the temptation. Second, he goes on then to, to encourage. He talks about encouragement to being willing, to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. The end of, of, of verse 8. But, he says, share in suffering. For the gospel, by the power of God. Encouragement to be willing to suffer for the gospel. Number one, uh, one reason he says is that we share in suffering. He doesn't say go out there and be a lone ranger, but share, participate. You may be alone at that moment, but you share in suffering in the sense that there are many others who have suffered for the sake of being Christians. And some you may know and others you may not. We could think of a long line of believers through history that we may never meet until glory. We won't meet until glory if they live before our lifetime, obviously, uh, who suffered faithfully for the sake of Christ, going back, of course, to the, to the time of the New Testament. Uh, Stephen, in the book of Acts, whose martyrdom is so uh, described in great detail in his faithfulness. But, of course, he was uh, not alone. Many have followed in his train, Suffering even death, but suffering maybe not quite to that degree, or not nearly to that degree. But certainly we're not alone. We share in suffering with believers who've gone before us in history. But we also share in suffering for Christ with those who are our contemporaries, who live today. Maybe live nearby, maybe we know them, maybe live on the other side of the world. There are many believers today who suffer persecution uh, or other forms of uh, uh, of affliction for the sake of Jesus. And so it is encouraging to realize we're not alone. We do share in suffering with many other faithful believers. But he also talks about the strength we have to do that. Uh, notice what he says at the end of verse 8. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. When I was in college, I remember... I think I've told you this. Remember finding a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs 
in our church library. And uh, this was a time when I was really beginning to grow as a Christian in reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, and perhaps you've had a similar experience. Another book I read one time of martyrdom suffering for Christ is Fair Sunshine, published by Banner of Truth about the Scottish Covenanters and the suffering that they endured, curiously enough, at the hands of those who profess to be Christians. Um, but the question always came up to me, and maybe it has to you if you read such things, is what would I have done? Would I have been faithful the way that they're faithful? That's a hard question to answer unless you're there. And there are a lot of things that might go into their being faithful the way they were, not the least of which is great knowledge of the Scriptures, uh, being filled with the Spirit, which itself led to very strong faith in Christ, a, a most palpable sense of spiritual realities that allowed them to be faithful, even to the point of death. But you know, if God puts you or me in that situation, he doesn't do it in isolation from his grace. And that, that's why Paul says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, not in your own strength, but by God's power. You see, we share in suffering with believers both before us and around us, and we have strength to suffer by the power of God, by his grace as we look to him in those circumstances, when he should put us in those circumstances. So in a situation where you may want to speak up for Christ, just pray silently, Lord, give me strength. Give me your strength to do this. Give me your power to be willing to identify myself as a Christian, regardless of what people might think of me or do to me. So that's the encouragement. We talked about the temptation, talked about this encouragement uh, to be willing to suffer for the gospel. But now he goes on in this, in this remaining couple of verses to give us some reasons, some uh, intellectual strength, some intellectual encouragement to recognize that the gospel we have is worth taking flack for. It's worth being avoided for. It's worth even dying for. And so in 9 and 10, he goes on to list some of those reasons. First one is, the gospel is the source of our transformation. It's the source of our transformation. Look at verse 9, first part. The power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's a, a very succinct description of the Christian life. God saved us. You just can't put it more simply than that, and yet it says everything, doesn't it? Uh, Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. It was God's work. We don't save ourselves. We don't hunker down and try harder. We don't try to climb that spiritual ladder to God. But God saved us. He did what was necessary. And he'll talk a little bit more about that in the following verse. Uh, but we need to recognize that. And he, he saved us. He, he redeems us to himself. He saves us, and he calls us to a holy calling. What is that holy calling? Well, it kind of depends on how you understand Paul. Is Paul saying to Timothy, he called you and me to the ministry of the gospel? Certainly a holy calling. Or is he saying, Timothy, he called you and me and all believers to a holy calling to be followers of Christ? Well, either one would be true. And, and certainly before he's a minister of the gospel, Timothy is a follower of Christ. He's a Christian. It is a holy calling. We've been saved by God. We've been called by God to follow Christ, to be his people, to be his children, uh, to be holy. Which 
It doesn't mean we dress strangely and sit on a mountaintop eating birdseed while we wait for the end. It means that as we go about our daily lives, as we go about our uh, favorite recreations, that our character resembles, our speech, our attitudes resemble that of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be holy means to be set apart. It means to be different. Not in a strange way, although the world may think us strange, but in the sense of being different in that we reflect the character of God, that we look something like our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we look like those in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells. So the first reason the gospel is worth suffering for is it is the source of our transformation. In the gospel, God has saved me from what I was. He saved me from hell. He saved me from my own self-destruction in my sin to himself and to this holy calling to follow Christ. Another reason Paul mentions here, the gospel is worth suffering for because it is rooted in God's election. Verse 9b. Not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. First of all, it's not because of our works. That's, that's fundamental to understanding the gospel. That it's not because we do something. It's not because we clean up our act. It's not because we turn over a new leaf. It's not even because we start trying to seek after God. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace. Because it was God's desire to save a people for himself. And it was grace because we didn't deserve it. In fact, we deserve the opposite. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And the reason we read Ephesians 1 earlier is because Paul takes this thought. Here that he says to Timothy, writes to Timothy, and he expands it. If you look at that first section that Mike read earlier, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, even though that's very tightly packed too, it is a little more expansive than what he writes here. But just God's setting his love on us, choosing us for himself in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And it's a past tense, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, before time in eternity past. Now, it's true, we're not saved until at some point in our lives we repent and believe in Jesus. But the encouraging thing is that when we've done that, we can look back and think, wow. Now, God set his grace upon me to save me even before he created the world. That's a humbling thing. It's also a very encouraging thing because we recognize that my relationship to God does not begin begin and continue with what I've done. Though by God's grace, I did believe. It began and it continues because of what God did and because of what he continues to do in my life. And so we're willing to suffer. We're willing to take a hit for the gospel because it's the source of our transformation. It's it's what God has done in our lives because it is rooted in eternity past in God's election because it was accomplished by Christ's redemption. Look at verse 10. And which, Paul continues, has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Now, what God did in eternity past cannot be seen. But Paul says that that plan of God's to save a people for himself has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. His appearing, he appeared in history. 
You see, Christianity may have a lot of uh, a lot of esoteric ideas and and some some difficult theological knots to work on. That's not its essence. That's simply working out the implications. The essence of Christianity is not theory, but history. It's not theology, but history. And the theology is, is talking about what that history means. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That Christ came into this world at a certain point in history, on a day you could mark on the calendar, the clock's running, or the sundial turning, or whatever it was. But the point being, in history, Jesus entered into this world. He appeared in history, just as you appeared in history, although, of course, he was born of the Virgin Mary, by the Holy Spirit, the appearing of our Savior. He is our Savior. Remember, the angel said to Joseph, you shall give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And he accomplishes that salvation through his perfect life, sinless life, through his sacrificial death, and through his victorious resurrection. Dying for us, being raised for us, living under the law for us. So, when we talk about the gospel, we're not simply talking about our own ideas. We're talking about what happened in history, the work of God in history. And then finally, not only is it the source of our transformation, as Paul says, and rooted in God's election, and not only is it accomplished by Christ's redemption, his work, but it, of course, results in our salvation, our eternal salvation. Look at the end of verse 10. The Lord Jesus Christ, Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and, on the positive side, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death. You say, well, people still die. Yes, they do. And in Christ, unless he comes first, you you will die bodily, but you, you will find that your soul is with Christ immediately. But as we read earlier in the Catechism, our bodies will await that day until they are raised up or reconstituted a new and glorified body to live forever in the, the new heavens and the new earth. But he has abolished death by going into the grave and by coming out. He broke its power. He broke its hold. So that, um, you know, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? It's been removed. Uh, death no longer holds terror for us. Maybe an uncomfortable thought, mainly because it's such an unknown. And yet we face it as Christians knowing that the moment of death is the moment of passing into the presence of Christ. And so it's terror, it's sting has, has been taken away, it's been abolished. Positively, he brought life and immortality. Now, hard to know how to take those words. Is Paul referring to two things, life here in this world and immortality afterwards? Uh, or life uh, that is immortal, immortal life, in other words, life that begins now and is unending? Either one, of course, is true. But he brought those things to light. Now, there's a sense in which they were always there through the Old Testament. But they really became much more clear with the ministry of Jesus, and especially with his life and death and resurrection. Uh, letters such as this and others that we find in the New Testament that explain it, that, that show what it means for us. It was brought to light. It was seen now in a new way. It was understood in a much more deeper, a much more deep and comprehensive way than it was before. 
through the gospel, through what Jesus has done. You know, it's helpful to remember Paul writes this as he faces imminent death. This is his hope. This is your hope. This is my hope. That Jesus has won for us a salvation in which he has abolished death, in which for us he has brought life and immortality to light. Meditate on that. Think about that. Let that grip your heart. That's one reason that saints of old and saints around the world today are able to stand for Christ even to death. Because they had a heavenly home that was very real. They were looking forward to. You see, Paul knew that truth of which John would write in Revelation fourteen thirteen: Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. You see, the thing about the gospel as we read these words is it's not just a matter of personal opinion. It's a matter of fact. It's a matter of history. It's a matter of reality. And that's what Paul meant when he says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why he's not ashamed. Because the gospel is something objective. It's something real. It's something powerful. Not just his personal opinion that he might be reluctant to let others in on. Power of God for salvation. And think about it. Think of all the people that the gospel has changed over history. Think of all the people, including you, that the gospel is at work in and has changed and is saved today. So far from being ashamed of the gospel, something about which we should boast. Remember what Paul said, may I never boast, except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That very point of shame, Paul says, may I never boast in anything but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you have never been tempted to be ashamed of the cross of Christ, to be ashamed of the gospel. Never. For the very good reason, perhaps, that you've never believed in the Christ of the gospel. But I encourage you to recognize who you are as a sinner under the judgment of a holy God. To recognize God's provision of a Savior who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. To see your need of Him and to believe in Him, to follow Him and to be saved. And then readily and quickly identify yourself as one of His. Embracing the gospel. Embracing people of God. For the rest of us, we need to recognize the gospel isn't so much about me as it is about God. The objective reality of what God has done. It's about Christ. It's about life. It's about the eternal life that God sent his son into this world 2,000 years ago to earn for us. Gospel is about the reality of God wanting us to be his people forever. What's to be ashamed of in that? Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would not only not be ashamed, but that we would be bold in a gracious and loving and winsome way. Uh, and that our lives would, would match our words with the love and the compassion and the grace of Christ. Father, we pray as believers, as families, as a congregation, that we would have confidence in the gospel such that we would always be ready to speak to others about your grace to make known that we are your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.